Blog Talk Radio. edition of Don't Let It Go Unheard, and this is where we discuss news, politics, and culture from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy. Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism uniquely upholds the right to the pursuit of your own happiness. I'm your host, Amy Peikoff, and those of you who listen to my show normally can probably tell I'm giving you a show with a cold today. Uh, you're you're going to be witnessing an act of will because not only do I have a cold, I'm horribly sleep deprived uh, right now. So I, I really wanted to do this show today, though. There's no way I was going to cancel. I can only do one show a week for probably the next four months or so. So I do not want to miss a single show. And particularly starting off the new year, I wanted to do a nice little show for you. If you go to the blog at don'tletitgo.com, that's don'tletitgo.com, you can see the program notes for today's show. And as you can tell, I didn't really go too far afield with the title today. It's just Don't Let It Go in 2017. Beginning of the year is a good time to just sort of recommit to the values in any realm that you're operating, right? And the values that you're dedicated to. And so on this show, we want to examine and kind of recommit the values that underlie the American sense of life, which, you know, as you guys know, if you've been following my show for a long time, my show, Don't Let It Go Unheard, is named after an essay by Ayn Rand that's called Don't Let It Go. It appears in the collection of essays called Philosophy Who Needs It. And in that essay, she describes a number of elements that make up what she calls the American sense of life. And so we want to, you know, kind of re-examine those, look at those. Every so often, I like to go back and revisit. And I think the beginning of the year is a good time to do that. So this is in the spirit of the show that Yaron Brook did the other day. I was listening to it earlier today, and uh, I've got a link to it in the program notes he called his Looking Forward and Wishes for 2017. And in that show, he talks about recommitting yourself to the values of reason, individualism, and capitalism, freedom, you know, free markets and capitalism. And he goes through each of those in quite a bit of detail, you know, talking about what they entail and, you know, what recommitting to them in today's context would look like. You know, what could you actually hope for in the coming year with respect to progress in each of those areas? This will, I think, complement that show. I do recommend going to listen to that show. 
you know, anytime you can go back and look at some of these core values and virtues and also the, you know, concrete explications of them, whether given by Yaron or Leonard Peikoff or Ayn Rand or anybody else, uh, Tara Smith does a lot of great work in this realm. Uh, when you just kind of look at that and think about it in the context of all the experiences that you've had in the past year and maybe where you could improve or maybe some lessons that you've learned or where you've done really well in certain realms, you say, okay, I, you know, pat myself on the back for doing something here. It's a great thing to do. So I would recommend, I mean, you know, I'll give you a little bit of a recapitulation with a couple things, but I recommend listening to it yourself because whatever context you bring to bear, there's going to be certain things that your own is going to bring to mind for you and make that show valuable for you to listen to. Um, the other thing that I put there in the program notes is a link to Tim Ferriss's podcast is kind of beginning of the year podcast. What I learned in 2016 and what he ended up doing was mostly talking about specific things that he learned from different guests that he had on the show and things like that. I'm going to talk about just a couple of things that I learned in 2016 in sort of abstract terms and maybe apply a little bit to some politics and stuff. But, uh, you know, again, I want to bring something to you that I uniquely can bring to you. So what can I bring to you? Things that I learned during the last year, Tim Ferriss, listen to it yourself and see the one thing that I remember and taking away from that. I listened to it a few days ago some of the things they, they just didn't seem so relevant for me to pick up on. You know, he's got tips for entrepreneurs in various areas and stuff. And it might not be that you're, you know, ready to grab onto something. But one thing that he talked about that I really liked in, in that show was the idea of uh, setting, self, setting yourself up two trips per year. So you would try to go on uh, a couple trips for, you know, a number of days, days where you unplug from social media and, you know, who knows, maybe focus on certain values or getting certain experiences and things like that. But point being that you would have something to look forward to, say, once every six months or so, where you would go out of your element, unplug from social media and everything else, maybe connect with friends, family, et cetera. And I think that is something that probably a lot of people could value, you know, get value from. I was talking to someone the other day and he had said that, but for Christian holidays, uh, he would never take any time off out of his year. And I was connecting that with what I heard from Tim Ferriss. They're just thinking how sad now this, this is not a person I felt like, you know, okay, I should tell him how he should live his life or whatever. If he wants to listen to my show, uh, I don't know that this guy will, he's a, a liberal that I know through some business connections, but, um, and in any event, I think probably anybody could gain some value from that. Having that sort of trip to look forward to some sort of experience like that once every six months or so would be a good thing. Um, so, yeah, as I said, go to don'tletitgo.com if you want to check out the program notes. I have actually some news stories that I want to talk about today as well, just to kind of start the year off right. Because what have I said I do plan to do is I do plan to talk about the Donald Trump presidency, hold his feet to the fire, so to speak. And so I've got some examples of that in today's show as well. Hello to everybody in the chat room over at Blog Talk Radio. Thank you for tuning in. I see that James is there. Welcome, James. I haven't seen him there very often. Uh, 
Tim is saying he's got sound. I hope you guys are all having sound. I'm going to have to go over and every so often check at the studio to make sure I'm connected. If you want to call in, of course, feel free to call in and talk about any of these topics. The number is 760-888-5817. Again, that's 760-888-5817. And I do hope you'll indulge me because every so often I'm going to take a sip of a beverage and keep my throat going here. I don't know. I I keep thinking of Marco Rubio with that water bottle every time I go to do something like that. That was a pretty fun thing. Yeah, everyone's got sound. Yay, James says hi. Um, Okay, so let's go over to the blog. Yeah, so Yaron's AM560 Rewind. Let me grab my my notes. Yeah, I actually took notes while I was listening to his show. But, um, you know, first this whole idea of just committing to reason as your means of knowledge and not guiding your life by emotions. Um, You know, a lot of people will, you know, just kind of sit back and say, okay, well, what do I feel about a certain thing? And that's how you're going to steer your life. This is not a way to do it. You know, obviously you do have to pay attention to your emotions because your emotions do tell you important things that you need to know often, but you got to examine those and say, okay, where do they come from? Do they come from valid premises? And examine those emotions through the lens of reason before you're making decisions about what to do. And he gives some examples, uh, some concrete examples of that there in the show. Um, He also was really talking about in this, in terms of politics and media and culture and reaction to politics that somehow this is the year where we're, you know, kind of post fact, we don't really care about facts anymore. So he would love to see everybody recommit to saying, yes, facts are important. It is important to know whether the news that you're getting is fake or real. Uh, This is an issue. I don't know if there's been a whole ton of fake news, but there's certainly been some, and it is something that you want to look out for. It's very easy to, grab onto a headline and not really read through a story and kind of share it and propagate it on social media. So being more deliberate about that sort of stuff, of course, is good. Um, Now, in terms of individualism, right? So reason individualism, he discussed, he discussed in the realm of individualism, the idea of self-reliance and, personal responsibility, taking seriously the idea of using your mind to discover the truth and make the most of your own individual life, committing to living the best life that you can live. Of course, at the beginning of the year is a time that we can all revisit that. There are other life events that happen where you say, okay, you know, uh, know, if I I, uh, go to the doctor and I'm not diagnosed with cancer, I'm recommitting to my values and things like that. But beginning of the year is a time that often people do this. You know, I had an interesting discussion uh, with a friend the other day about, you know, the beginning of the year, it's kind of an arbitrary thing in some ways, right? That you kind of draw this line and December 31st, it's the horrible 2016. And then suddenly you're in January 1st and it's the beautiful full of promise and hope 2017 uh, isn't that kind of arbitrary. It's not really arbitrary, right? Because the division of time into years is based on 
you know, the actual events, our trip around the sun and stuff. But, you know, the and you do need to kind of demarcate time, right? But the, the fact that we do it at this particular time of year, is that arbitrary? And I'm arguing no, because, you know, once solstice is over and the days are getting longer, that is a time that you're starting to feel more hopeful. The days are not getting shorter and darker. They're getting longer and brighter. So it's not completely arbitrary to take this particular time of the year to recommit to living the very best life that you can live and doing things about it, right? You know, actually taking action. Ayn Rand had this really great tradition, which was, and in other cultures they do too. I think it's uh, in Eastern European. I heard, I spoke to a woman from Poland last week and she was saying that this is something that she in her culture also does, which is that if there's something that you want to spend a significant portion of the coming year doing, you know, say you're writing a book or connecting with certain friends, et cetera, that you will spend some time on that first day of the year, making sure that you do at least a little of it, right? Um, You might be really busy. You might have, you know, you're going first day of the year. Sometimes they have their rose parade on the first day of the year. I guess they did it differently this year, but you know, there's things that people do, but set aside that time to just actually do a little bit towards achieving that goal. And I made sure to do a little of that in a couple of realms uh, this year. So it's always nice to do that. Uh, third realm that your own talked about free markets, let's say fair capitalism. And in particular, he was hopeful that there may be some things done to help drain the swamp as that was really probably the best slogan that Donald Trump, had and that he was running on and will it actually happen will he actually do things to help drain the swamp he arguably did something this week that is at least continuing the process of draining the swamp but you you guys can tell me what you think about it this whole exchange you know how much did donald trump's tweeting have an effect on the house leaving this ethics commission in place and stuff. We'll talk about that story and you can see what you think. In terms of capitalism and individual rights, Yaron is somewhat skeptical because he knows that Donald Trump sort of sees himself as the CEO of the country and the country doesn't need a CEO. Uh, You know, one thing I was thinking of that he could have capitalized on when he was talking about free markets and capitalism, right? Because he was saying, you know, not only are we looking at whether our country is going to be committed to these values as a whole, reason, individualism, and capitalism, but whether you are in your own life and how does an individual in his or her own life commit necessarily to free markets and capitalism? Obviously, reason and individualism, we all can in our individual lives. Um, some people are activists, and so then they're writing about free markets and capitalism, but Of course, what he could have said is that everybody should, if they want to commit to free markets and capitalism, support the Ayn Rand Institute, but he didn't say that. If you want to send money into my show to help support free markets and capitalism, which I talk about every week, you're welcome to do that. Um, Yeah, so support support your own, support me. That helps as well if you're not doing it uh, explicitly in, in your own life. Of course, you do it in your own realm as well, just by going out there and succeeding and participating in the market and pushing back against regulations and everything else. Um, 
So that's what I was getting from your own. And as I said, here I gave you a little recapitulation, but I suggest listening to the whole show because there's going to be things when you're listening to him and the examples and the elaborations that he's giving, they're going to occur to you and you're going to get value out of that. So I would definitely suggest checking it out for yourself. I'm going to zoom over here in the chat room. Rob says that 2016 sucked when it went when it comes to politics, but I made a lot of progress on some of my personal goals. That's really good. Now, see, for me, I made progress, but like, and I've I've shared that video of the poor kid. He's dragging the trash can against the wind and the trash can. So I made tremendous progress, but I felt like in making that progress, I'm having this trash can lid hit me in the head a lot of times. Such is life. It, it happens. Politics. Um, politics is about managing expectations, I think, right now. I think we thought that someone like Ted Cruz, and in particular Ted Cruz himself, had a chance in this election, and, and he actually did not. So what did I do? I gave him my little send-off video where I drank the scotch, and we said, okay, you know, maybe next time. <sighs> maybe in 2020. Herman says in the chat room that Bill Whittle makes a joke every time he drinks water. He says, excuse me while I ruin my political career. I don't, did Marco Rubio ruin his political career just with that one thing where he's drinking the water? I hope I don't ruin my radio career by taking sips every so often, which is what I'm going to do right now. Here we go. The question is, am I going to take some kind of noisy, horrible, slurpy sip? It's going to lose all of you. I don't know. If you do call in and you want to talk... What you need to do is press the one button, but of course you can also just call in and listen to the show by phone. If anybody's ever having trouble with their internet connection, you can call that number that I gave you and actually just listen to the show that way as well. Um, yeah, and Rob says he looks forward to continuing the progress on personal goals in 2017. Yeah, we don't know what politics is going to bring. All I know is that we can sit back and critique Trump and see what happens. It's really going to be interesting. And as I said, I've got a couple stories I want to talk about today that, you know, starts that process. It's the first show of the year. We may as well start the thing that I intend to be doing throughout the year. Uh, So, Going back to the blog at don'tletitgo.com and, and the program notes, like I said, listen to Tim Ferriss. I really like that idea of him sharing with you what he learned in 2016. If you are an entrepreneur, maybe more of what he talks about in there is going to be personally relevant to you. Uh, to me, there was a lot of things that he kind of went, you know, went quickly through and didn't necessarily strike me as something that I wanted to make that note of. But that one thing about the trips really did. Um, For me, in terms of what I learned during the year, I mostly share it with you during the show. That's one of the things that having a radio show does is it gives you the opportunity to sort of download different things that you've been thinking about, at least in, in abstract terms. And one thing that I've talked about with you guys is my idea of this black box idea, you know, and it's, it's in reaction to something like diagnosing Donald Trump as a narcissist, right? Um, Do we care what the psychological diagnosis of Donald Trump is, is can anybody really diagnose him without actually 
properly examining him and what do we care? We care what he does. We do care what he says. We're going to talk a little bit about what he says and how he says it today as well, but it's what he does and how it affects us. And I mean, you could look at it from the perspective of, you know, does he do something just kind of randomly and out of character on one day, or is he doing something as a pattern of behavior that is not likely to change given his age and his pattern of behavior over his entire life. I don't have to put a label on it. I don't have to call it narcissism or whatever it is. You know, you've heard me characterize him on the show here. I just say, look, Donald Trump's just not that into your rights. And that's a huge problem because what is a president supposed to do? He's supposed to uphold and defend the Constitution, which, at least in its original understanding, was designed to protect our individual rights. It is really troubling that the president of the United States does not operate on the principle of protecting the individual rights of American citizens. And that's all I need to know. I don't need to know why it is exactly. I mean, there might be certain cases where the behavior of of somebody, it's due to something that can be changed or fixed. And the person's like on the road to fixing it or something. So then you say, okay, but I don't see Donald Trump saying whatever it is that's causing me to not be into rights, you know, like suppose he signs up for philosophy lessons from Ankar Gatte of the Ayn Rand Institute. You know, if if Trump did this, then I'd say, okay, you know, there's, there's hope. Um, But he's not even listening to his own advisors before he's sending these caustic tweets out into the world I just don't see him changing anytime soon. So what do you think you're going to get? You're going to sometimes get some decent things like we may have seen this week. Uh, Sometimes you're going to get some truly horrific things, but none of it is going to be guided by this principle of individual rights because he just doesn't seem to understand it. It doesn't, it's not a motivating principle for him. Uh, So that, that black box idea has, you know, for me been a big thing this year, you know, just deciding it doesn't really matter. You know, you don't have to spend your time beyond a certain point deciding what's in the black box in order to decide what sort of interaction you want to have. And so, you know, making that judgment is, is one thing, but like I said, some people just get overly fixated as to what it is that causes Donald Trump. Let's psychoanalyze. And at a certain point, it's just a waste of time. You're just wasting your time and your life and your energy doing that uh and oh let me think one thing so so i was thinking about my black box idea the other day and then i was thinking about the long-standing conflict among objectivists uh do you talk about the jihadists as being motivated by islam or do you use some other term like peter schwartz's islamic totalitarianism right um there's there's sort of a black box idea going on here, right? With with the using that label Islamic totalitarianism. I, I'm throwing. I'm, I hope you don't mind. I'm throwing out my term this black box because I have this whole process of thought that is has been culminated in this term black box in my mind, and I'm just throwing it around as if everybody fully understands what in the hell I'm talking about. Um, but you know the idea behind using this label Islamic totalitarianism is that you don't necessarily care 
exactly what the ideology is that's motivating, like whether it's Islam as such or whether it's some variant of Islam or it's like some misinterpretation of Islam. You don't care, right, supposedly. Um, You just care about whether these are people who are engaged in this attempt to destroy you in the name of some vaguely Islamic ideology or some part of it. So maybe you're comfortable calling them jihadists or something. Uh, and, and you think, okay, we don't have to go beyond that. We don't have to decide whether it's the religion as such in order to figure out our policy. And so, you know, again, because I've been thinking about this black box idea in, in these other realms. So I revisit this idea of Islamic totalitarianism. And I actually disagree with this. I, I think you do have to understand whether Islam itself is caustic and dangerous in formulating different policies, like, for example, what's your policy on Muslim immigration for, you know, you need to know. So I don't think that the, my, again, my black box idea, that it could be applied to philosophy, right? When you know that somebody is actually acting on using as their motivating principle an ideology, you want to really understand what that ideology is and not just be content to label it on the level of behavior. Right. So, but, but I think with psychology, right. If you say, well, what is in Donald Trump's psychological past that makes him the way he is, that's something to me because it's not somebody consciously adopting ideas. It's acting out of things that maybe they don't even understand. So, um, I I would draw a distinction between the two. I would not extend my little idea. Not that any of you had suggested that, but in my own mind, I was thinking, well, you know, do you go ahead and extend this to this idea of Islam versus Islamic totalitarianism? So uh, given that I've gotten one of my two things that I learned and I was going to share with you or just reiterate with you out, I'm going to take a call or two here. I've got a couple callers waiting. First, I'll grab... This hi, you're on the air. Who's this? Hey, it's Harold. How are you doing, Amy? I'm doing okay, Harold. How are you? Good. All right. So I, I heard your show last week, but because of the scheduling, I'm, I didn't get to comment live. And I do have a lot to say about what happened last week, uh, if you if you don't mind. Um, I don't want to go too far afield from what I'm doing no. today because today I want it to be sort of a more what have we learned positive, let's take it into the new year focus. Versus okay. last year, I was, I mean, last year. Yeah, last year, no, last, last week, which last was part of last year. It's So last year was basically good riddance 2016, right? But you don't yeah. get rid of it that easily. The effects carry over. Oh, no, of course. Of course. Right. But it's, so, it's, it's um, a matter, it's a, it's a matter of selecting focus. So, um, so do you have sort of a, 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 yeah, a number have, of points you want to make? Yeah, I have a couple of points. But firstly, I just want to tell you about health. Um, the one thing that helps you get over whatever it is you're sick with quickly mm-hmm. is the, the one thing that's proven is getting some zinc, like 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 about right. 30 milligrams of zinc. That will speed up your convalescence time. It will reduce the I have I have been taking zinc. I have been taking zinc. I've been drinking My, fluids. I just got to get to sleep. That's all. <laughs> 
And yeah, the sleep is the other thing. And also lemon juice, if you squeeze half a lemon in a glass of water and you warm it up, not hot, not cold, and you do that once an hour, that is another very good thing. It it it, it has very dramatic antiseptic effects. Okay. Okay, so I appreciate little, that. Little things make a difference. <clears throat> I, Thank you, sir. Since I've changed what I do, I don't get sick on flights anymore, never. I used to always, mm. and now I don't. And it's all nutrition and sleep, of course. Okay. All right, so yesterday you talked about the United Nations and what's going on, the whole maneuvering and what Obama's done against Israel at the UN. Right. They literally are doing right as what I do, right as what I say, wrong as what you say, or wrong as what you do. By any known principles, they are not even adhering to their own principles. For example, might makes right. The Jordanians invaded the West Bank in 1949 or 48 and held it for 19 years. Suddenly, you're going from a situation where they had no claims to everyone agreeing that they now have the right to the entire West Bank. Mm-hmm. Then when the Israelis take over the West Bank in 67, suddenly mm-hmm. that principle evaporates. So it's a sort of like my tribe is right, your tribe is wrong. It's total tribalism, and the United Nations has sided with the Arab-slash-Muslim tribe in this conflict. It's like a team sport. No principles at all, not even their own principles, because the UN yeah, was I mean, founded. Yeah, the, 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 way, the way I understand it was that the reason the 67 war happened in the, that particular you know, territory at the West Bank had to be grabbed was because for geographical reasons, Israel needs it to defend itself, its, its total existence, that that's actually essential for it. Is my understanding wrong? I mean, I may have to go revisit that. It's been a while since I've looked at it, but that had been if you look my at, understanding. If you look at the geography, the West Bank is all the high, the high mountainous areas in the center. There's right. like a spine that goes down the center. Same with Lebanon. There's a spine that goes down the center where all the, all the mountainous areas are, the high ground. Once you control the high ground, you control the roads, etc. The Jordanians made a move from the West Bank, and they were using it as a launching pad against Israel, against Jerusalem. So there was pretty much no choice in that. They had right. to take it away from them. It was right. going back, going back to the first resolution the UN passed in 19, November 1947. It's called Resolution 181. That's what did the separation, the partition. The partition was into three regions, not two. There was supposed to be an Arab state, a Jewish state, and an international zone. And that international zone covered the greater Jerusalem area, much bigger than it is today. And that was never defined as Arab-controlled territory. It was always defined as internationally controlled. So for the UN to go back on that now is to go back on what they said themselves, what was the actual principles involved. They have a founding charter that literally are changing the rules on the fly every day as they go with no rules at all. So I think they, what Obama did with this whole thing, he's literally tossed a grenade into the two-state solution. It's gone. He blew the whole thing up himself, and I think it's done now. And the Israelis pretty much can unilaterally go and do whatever they like because the option for dialogue has ended. Once you compel one side to act and the other side has a free hand, there's no more negotiations. Mm, you know, you could okay. listen to John. Listen to John Bolton. He pretty much had the the right point of view on that. Okay, and feel free if you've got a clip from Bolton and you want to post it at the blog and people can check it out. That would yeah. be great. Yeah, I disagree with Bolton. He says the West Bank should go back under Jordan. I don't think that's a good idea. 
Ooh, he said that? Yeah, that's not a good idea. The Jordanians wow. have no claim. The Jordanians, that's, the West that's Bank. That's disappointing. That's the, that's the second time he's disappointed me because he also disappoints me on Snowden. Yeah, <sighs> I, I think there can be a Palestinian state. Let them have the Gaza Strip, you know, let them do whatever they like there as long as they're not building tunnels and such, you know, and rockets right. and let them do right. whatever. I mean, Hong Kong is successful. It's a small piece of land, but people have made a go of it. So why can't the Gaza Strip be successful? Vastly different culture operating, right, <laughs> in Hong Kong. Vastly. I'm, I'm trying to be optimistic for 2017. There you go. There you go. All right. Have a good one. Get well. Okay. Great. Thank you, Harold. You take care. Bye. I've got another caller that I'm going to grab here. That was actually one topic, so that was I. That was no problem at all. Oops. I think I got it. Hi, you're on the air. Who's this? Uh, hi, this is Walter. Hello? Hello? Is this Waldo? Yes. Okay. I can hear you. It's a little bit choppy, so I'm not sure why the sound is not that good. Some, in, um, yeah, I can you hear me better right now? I, I can hear you better right now. Yeah, so we'll oh. we'll just see how we'll just see how we go with this. If the, if the sound gets yeah, too if it doesn't work, just yeah. like hang up on sure. me. Yeah, it's sure. fine. <laughs> I'll, I'll be nice um, about yeah. it. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, just give me a, a a five second warning or something. That's right. Um, That's right. <laughs> I was calling because you were talking about the black box, and I didn't really understand what you were referring to. Right. So um, so I have this idea that, that that you know. People always talk about what's inside a black box. You know, a black box, there, there's a thing that does something, but you don't know what's inside causing what it does. And a lot of people have been trying to explain Donald Trump, you know, what's inside the black box is Donald Trump and it's his narcissism. And so, you know, let's have long articles about the psychology of narcissism and how it makes Donald Trump do what he does and why he's so dangerous and this, you know. And I just Mm -hmm. I I get away from the idea of, you know, sitting there and diagnosing in terms of psychology, what it is that people are doing. Uh, Just, you know, say, okay, they're doing X, Y, Z. This has been a longstanding pattern of behavior. They don't show any signs of going to change this and it's causing these harms to me. So I'm going to react in certain ways that are appropriate given the context. Right. Right. I mean, you can only react to actions because you cannot really know exactly what someone is thinking or why they did. Like, even if you straight up ask them, if um, uh, Ayn Rand had countless sessions with Nathaniel Brandon trying to figure out what his issues were, he kept complaining about contradictions and issues that he was having. So in the yeah, end, she was know, never he, able he to was... discover it. He was lying. He was actively lying to her. Exactly. So You're right. Trump could lie about why he does something. So, like, it's just impossible. You cannot, like, come well, to okay, but you can't, There's no way you to can't, say he's being honest. You can't in every single context say, okay, I'm going to throw, up my, throw my hands up in the air and not know at all what's going on in the black box. Like, I think you need to get enough so that you can say, okay, based on all the knowledge I have, there is a range of possibilities that's going on in the black box but say you've decided that whatever that range of possibilities is, you don't even need to know which of the range. It's not likely to change in a way that's going to affect your relationship with that person. 
anytime in the near future. So you're going to do, you know, whatever it is that's appropriate for you to do, given your judgment that whatever the possibility is that's in this. So you see what I mean? So we don't know. I don't know if he's a narcissist or anything else, you know, but what I do know is that he's not motivated by the principle of individual rights. He seems to have no understanding or ability to articulate. He couldn't even defend himself for taking tax breaks for the losses, you know, that he incurred in his business and stuff. He's just pathetic. So, you know, the idea that I need to figure out what's going on psychologically when no, I'm just looking at how he's operating in his life. I, I just, and then he's not likely to change at his age. And he's, you know, like I said, he hasn't signed up for tutorials from on Cargate. So, you know, what do I do accordingly? Skepticism about what he's going to do. Maybe he'll do some good things, but mostly I have not a whole pile of hope. And I have the resolve to critique him at every turn as part of what I do. Um, I mean, I think that's totally a rational thing to do because, I mean, you know, just take a look at his actions and, you know, you can then try to say because if he's acted this way, he's likely to act X way in the future. But I think, like, trying to, like, analyze him too much, like, over, like, trying to, like, I think just people are just paranoid. They don't know exactly what he's going to do. They want to know that he will do exactly X when situation Y occurs and be certain of certain things, and I, that is, like, a level of analysis that I think we cannot reach just because of how erratic his behavior is and uh, unpredictable he is, and, like, trying to, like, go too far it will just lead you to, like, false assumptions that are just, like, you're going to then become too confident in that you know what he's going to do, and then we'll do something else, and we'll be like, well, that threw everything out the window. Are we going to start the analysis all over again? Yeah, I mean, it, it, lo- it looks like it looks like it's more fruitful to try to predict what's going to happen in certain realms based on his choice of appointments for various positions. So, yeah, you know, like I said, the one who's going to be the education secretary, DeVos, I think is her name, the kind of stuff that she said and what she's been involved in predicting what that's going to mean for education. That's where you could maybe engage in some level of prediction. But what I can predict is that he does seem like your own was saying to want to be sort of the CEO and he is not at all motivated or animated is really the better word by the principle of individual rights. So that's worrisome because I think a president should in the United States, at least everywhere would be wonderful if every world leader was animated by upholding the principle of individual rights, then I probably wouldn't have to have a show, right? Uh, <laughs> you're, you're just praising everyone uh, for 130, uh, for like an hour and a half. <laughs> yeah, it could, it could just be all about, you know, how to improve your life and pursue values without critique of politics at all. But, um, of course, there's a place for that as well. I, I like to happen, you know. I like to critique these people who are affecting our lives. You know, the, the old saying: "You may not be into politics, but politics is into you." Um, so, uh, so you just wanted an explanation of what I meant by the black box? Um, yeah, mainly that. I I'm trying to recall. I did have another question that I I got slightly distracted. Um, so, um, I think I was somewhat related to 
to um, Trump and Putin. And I know there's been a lot of, like, talk lately about the relationship that they may or may not have and what the future relationship is going to be and what that Mm -hmm. means for us. And I read about the people that Trump has appointed having economic ties to Russia or having been linked to Putin and, like, oh, he gave this guy a medal or something. I mean, sadly, I cannot recall the names right now. But certain things like that, I want to know, like, have you read anything about this? I have seen some references to things like that, links, business links that these people would have to Putin or to Russia. And, yeah, of course, that's disturbing, but that should come up in any ethics screening for these individuals. And, you know, it shouldn't apply just, to Russia. Obviously, Russia is of particular right. concern right now, but yeah. Right. If you have ties to Saudi Arabia or anywhere, yeah, it should definitely be examined. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty. So. I'm pretty sure that in the Senate, in the Senate at least, they are going to. You know, the Democrats there are going to really try to encourage a full examination of these potential appointees. They're not happy about a lot of them, right? The the Senate Democrats. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so sadly, I cannot remember any other questions that I had. Um, okay. uh, so, yeah. <laughs> well, feel feel free to put a little note in the chat room if you want to come on again, and I'll go ahead and get you back on again because I've got an area code so I can use to remember, you know, which which on the switchboard is you. So thanks, Waldo, for calling okay. in, and ha- Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Amy. Okay. Let me go back over to the chat room and there's a little bit oh so Tim is talking about he says a black box is opaque the operations inside are unknown and unexplainable yeah so I guess I have a gray box or something or a semi-opaque box in my mind where you can at least know or maybe you're just inferring maybe it's still opaque but you can infer based on behavior that there's kind of a range of possibilities going on inside the black box. And suppose you decide that all of them are no good in your view. And so that you're going to go ahead and act accordingly and not just no good, but intractable. I mean, they're just not going to be changing anytime soon. So you just do your thing uh, depending on the context. Now let's see perpetrators of a case like pizza. Again, now it's probably beyond what I want to talk about here. So let me go back again, go to the blog, don't let it go.com and follow me here on the program notes. I want to dive in and talk about don't let it go again. Don't let it go is the essay that's in philosophy who needs it. And as I said on this show, which is called don't let it go unheard after that essay, every so often I like to Revisit this. So the thing you want to think about as we're going through these is how in your own life have you manifested or been animated by these values and attitudes that Ayn Rand talks about as comprising the American sense of life and also as a corollary, how do we think things are doing with respect to these in the culture and looking forward to 2017, what can you do to improve yourself along all of these axes and what could we do to bring about 
adherence to these values in the culture and, of course, explicit discussion of the different options. Because what she talks about, right, and let me see if I can, I've got about, I've got a notebook, I've got my iPad, I'm juggling 12 things here. Well, not 12, but on the iPad, I've got philosophy who needs it. And at the beginning of the essay, Rand talks about what she means by an American sense of life. And it's always better, especially if you have a cold and you're tired, to quote directly from Rand. So she says, a sense of life is, and this is philosophical jargon coming at you, preconceptual equivalent of metaphysics. So let's just, well, but I, I'm, I'm just going to go past that for this. But she says, look, it's, a, it's an emotional subconsciously integrated appraisal of man and of existence. So you walk around with this sense of you, but also man as a species and the relationship of man to the universe. Basically is the universe, this auspicious place where you can go and achieve values or is it not? This is the kind of idea that you kind of walk around with on a, on a daily basis. Continuing with Rand, she says it represents an individual's unidentified philosophy, she says, which can be identified and corrected if necessary, I'll add, even if with a very great struggle, that continues forever. No, sorry. Um, Also, continuing with Rand, she says it affects his choice of values and his emotional responses, influences his actions, and frequently clashes with his conscious convictions. Yes, it often can do that. And then she says, for a detailed discussion, see philosophy and sense of life in Romantic Manifesto. So then when she talks about what a sense of life is just in general and and to an individual, she could say, well, there's a sense of life in the culture. And in the culture, you would say, okay, um, it's not that every member of a given nation shares a particular sense of life, she says, but only that a dominant majority shares the essentials in various degrees. And of course, what you are concerned with as an individual is whether you share this sense of life in all of the different facets. And we would like to see that, at least dominantly in the culture, the sense of life is alive and well. And you can think about that as we go through the various facets. So when it actually comes to describing the American sense of life, the uniquely American sense of life, she says it's a very complex idea and that the best way to fully understand what the American sense of life is, is to go through different facets of it and compare the ideas that we have to ideas that Europeans, for example, hold. And so that's when she goes through all of the different elements. And that's when I switch over to my notebook. Um, So the first element, she says, Europeans see themselves as belonging to a state Americans, on the other hand, we see ourselves as independent entities, and we don't have any sort of concept of service or servitude to anyone. And and the thing that comes to mind here is that we have seen a bit of a resurgence of nationalism in the wave of popularity for Trump. Uh, You know, this um, make America great again, America first and everything, without really understanding the principles that make America great, the right to the pursuit of happiness and all that that implies, you know, respect for individual rights as making America great. That's not part of this 
jump, you know, to, to say, okay, make America great again, basically at whatever cost, sacrifice anything else. So I would say there is, you know, an issue at least culturally. How do you feel yourself? I, you know, I think it could be pretty easy to start feel, you know, you feel worn down depending on what realm you work in. You might be bogged down with all sorts of independent or independent. I don't know why I said independent. Oh, because I have that here on the page in front of me. Uh, there might be a wide variety of regulations that are impinging on you in the work that you do. Financial services industry is just rife with all sorts of regulations, a lot of them contradicting one another, so you have no idea what to do, and you feel like you're just a subject to the whim of a bureaucrat, that would not make you feel very much like an independent entity during a large part of your workday, perhaps. Or maybe you're in a field where there is a state-mandated barrier to entry and you're just trying to get in and you're being bogged down by that. There's all sorts of things that can you know, make you not feel this way. And then the question is, can you go ahead and exercise that independence deliberately in the realms that you can and remember that although you do have to conform your conduct to not go to jail or to be allowed to legally do business in a certain area or whatever, nonetheless, you can keep in your mind the idea that this is not what would be happening in a proper society with a a proper government, you know, this double entry bookkeeping, keeping in your mind what would be right under a, you know, a, a just society. Um, yeah, I know we're talking about Americans. Herman in the chat room says that the few times that he's met Americans in real life, he really gets the concept of sense of life. He says there's a positivity rooted in them that is rare in Europe. Yeah, in the essay, Rand mentions that someone, again, from Europe who was observing Americans, observed that Americans seem by and large, except for the intellectuals, but by and large to be happy, that they're so happy, that that is somehow a difference between them and people in Europe. Um, yeah, so that's, uh, and that's a little bit out of order. So that, So then what's the next element? Americans believe that your money properly earned in whatever realm is to use the old distinctly American expression, quote, as good as the next fellows. That is a distinct part of the American sense of life that, you know, you don't have to have old money inherited from royalty or something in order for your money to be treated as good, not in America. In America, you earn your money honestly, then yes. Now, if you're in Washington, D.C., skimming off of, the backs of Americans? No, I wouldn't want the money there. What do we do in America? We admire achievement versus the Europeans, she says, who regard achievement with cynical suspicion and envy. And there's a lot of that out in the culture right now. And I would say as individuals, you have to kind of rail against it. You have to not absorb it in your own thinking, you know, in your whatever realms that you operate. I can give you an example from dog agility. I was, I've been a competitor in dog agility in part of my life. And I happen to, just because I have the same breed of dog, and I actually happen to have a dog from the same litter as this individual I was friends with, this guy who's a world champion in dog agility. And in the national stage, he would just win every single competition. And the people who regard you know, 
achievement like that, winning all these competitions with cynical suspicion and envy, they're saying about this guy, God, you know, does he have to win every single competition? And they're implying that the rules should be changed, that he's not allowed to win every year. And look, this guy just comes in and he leaves it all out there on the agility field and he turns in superlative you know, performances year after year after year. He's got his dogs trained really well so that they are taking the commands and you know, running super fast around the course and everything else. He's earned it. Um, and so what did I do when I saw this is I would go out there and say something. You know, you see on social media people make little remarks in these posts and stuff, you have an opportunity in whatever realm that you're in. If somebody is regarding achievement with cynical suspicion and envy and criticizing somebody who earns what they have achieved, then you go in there and you just say a little word and support for them and do that. And like I said, also keep in your own mind, don't let this culture of envy to the extent that it exists go out there. I don't think it's too bad in America. I mean, we still, and Yaron has talked about this extensively, we still admire the tech giants in Silicon Valley and such. I don't think it's too bad, but I have seen it in certain realms and it's important to stand up for uh, achievement. Public figures. We treat our public figures here as equals. We treat them with respect, but we treat them as equals. A couple things in the last year that I can think of in this realm is the cast of Hamilton speaking to Mike Pence. Now, it's not like they, you know, didn't treat him respectfully. I thought that they did treat him respectfully. He, Mike Pence and his family were going to get up and leave right after the musical was over. And I forget the name of the actor. I'm sorry. You know, I, I just can't remember right now. But, you know, he says, you know, Mr. Pence, would you sit here and listen? You know, we want to say something to you. And he spoke his mind about his concern for rights, LGBT and others you know, under a Trump-Pence administration. And he did it respectfully, but he also spoke to Mike Pence as someone who's an equal. And in Europe, Rand observed, you know, there's all these titles, Air Doctor Doctor in Germany and all this. So they don't have that same relationship to our public figures and our politicians as we do here. Uh, ironically, the thing that I've been just kind of remarking about as a spectacle and just trying to absorb as part of my thinking, this idea that our president is out there on Twitter on a daily basis, just tweeting policy and, and everything else. In a way, the fact that our politicians and movie stars and everybody else is just out there on Twitter, on Instagram, and that you can follow and you can say things to them, particularly on Twitter, you can reply. And I've been, now I'm replying. Uh, I think that's a good thing. It's, it's, you know, he's there on Twitter, you're there on Twitter. And, and it's not any surprise in my mind that it's this realm of technology, social media that has served as even more of an equalizer. So, you know, in my mind, this also points to the importance of keeping this realm of Facebook and Twitter and Google and, you know, all of these online tech companies, keeping them as unregulated as possible, allowing them to create these platforms where, hey, that's just another person on Twitter and you can go ahead and tweet to them too. And occasionally I think Trump actually responds to people, but you know, this idea that you can engage with politicians, movie stars, 
top scientists, top scholars in any field, you know, interact with them as relative equals in this forum is, is a really good thing. And again, it's not surprising that it's in Silicon Valley that they've created this ability to, to do that. Uh, next, initiative, having initiative versus the idea of keeping one's place. Uh, and the example that Rand talks about in the essay is suppose you're in a factory and something breaks down. In Europe, the person who, say, works on this particular piece of equipment in the factory when it breaks down, they're not going to take the initiative to actually figure it out themselves if the protocol and the procedure of the company says, oh, gosh, don't touch it yourself, call so-and-so, and then just wait, you know, and I don't know, twiddle your thumbs, don't be productive until the, you know, appointed person who's authorized comes over and fixes this thing. Versus America, we take the initiative and we go ahead and do this. When I was looking at this again uh, today, just preparing for the show, I was thinking of my experience. Uh, when I was 19, I managed a Sam Goody's record store. And I'm that's pretty cool to be a manager at 19 that was not too bad but I remember getting frustrated at the policies and procedures that would come down from the Sam Goody's corporate and not let me decide at my store level whether to merchandise in certain ways or how to handle certain procedures and things like that and it was one of the reasons that I actually left and decided to go to college and you know, pursue certain majors and things like that. And at the time I just thought, oh, well, this is inherent in retail that they're going to have this top down. Little did I think of at the time, I was only 19. Little did I think at the time, oh gosh, I could find a different company that allowed you to exercise individual initiative as part of its corporate culture. And then maybe I would have been happy in that realm and I could have, you know, someday become the CEO like John Allison did or something. No, instead, I happened to be in this one company, and I did because I love music. So, of course, I went to Sam Goody's and became a manager there. I love music. I got to really learn about a lot of cool stuff as it came in. You know, it was newly released, and I'd be the first one to listen. Uh, but, you know, like I said, this idea of initiative, I bristled against it, that I couldn't have initiative at the store level with respect to some of these decisions. Next prong. Um, the idea of social status, whatever your social status is, dictating where you can shop. Supposedly in Europe, this is a big thing and not so much here in United States. And I think for the most part, it's still true that anybody can go to Target, as we call it, and buy things and take advantage of the lower prices and well, you know, the way they set up and merchandise their stuff, which is convenient. There's a whole bunch of variety of things in one store that you can get a lot of shopping done at one time, whatever. We can all go do it. Um, and it doesn't say anything about you. In Europe, I think, well, I, I can't say in Europe, but I, you know, the example that comes to my mind in England, actually, um, uh, is Kate Middleton, right? That she has sort of changed the image of royalty you know can they wear the same outfit twice and what sort of clothes does she have to wear and it doesn't have to be the most expensive designers and and all of this and actually i'm wondering what we're going to see with a trump presidency right so you know what is 
Melania Trump going to, you know, is she going to wear only these really expensive designer gowns and start having this idea that there's a social status that dictates what clothes you can wear and where you can shop and all of that. That would be kind of sad to see that sort of culture come here. So maybe we'll have to do some commentary on that as and when we see it come up. Um, okay. Oh yeah. Here's the prong. I had a, I had a note that was scrawled and I couldn't quite read it as well. So the next one is living in terms of emotional, you know, in emotional terms in a world that's created by others. Is that what you do? Do you live emotionally in a world created by others or do you take to heart the phrase from the Westerner by Badger Clark? Actually, it's a, it's actually a full sentence, not just a phrase, Amy, but here's the full sentence. The world began when I was born and the world is mine to win. Do you take that to heart, that you create the world that you live in, particularly emotionally? This is something that she thinks is unique to Americans, whereas Europeans live in this world, at least emotionally, that is created by others. Americans is happy. We talked about that. Herman in the chat room says that that's something that he has observed himself with Americans. Um, with respect to evil, Americans do, of course, believe in the existence of evil, but generally have not believed in the power of evil. Uh, and in some ways, Americans have been so naive about evil that they need to learn to understand its nature. My question would be, after 9-11, do we still not believe in the power of evil, or are we starting to be a bit cowed by evil, at, you know, taking this idea that terrorism is just a fact of our lives and we just have to kind of accept it and not try to push for a proper foreign policy or a proper policy of immigration or being allowed to discriminate in certain contexts in order to keep yourself out of danger, etc. I think Americans have in a certain way absorbed the idea that evil has some power and it's just a necessary part of life that we're just supposed to sit there and accept and take. And we need to be careful not, not to do that. Uh, class warfare, the idea of class warfare. Rand writes in her essay, which is I think around 1971, that she published it, that you know we reject this idea of class warfare. Is it really true that now we reject the idea of class warfare? I see class warfare writ large in the policies of Democrats. And in some ways, you could see class warfare also present in Trump. It's just a different class asserting its interests. You'd say, okay, well, you know, and of course, the media has been making a huge thing. Oh, this is the, what is it, the, the forgotten middle class of the great unwashed or something that's somehow speaking out when they've elected Trump. It, again, all in terms of, of class warfare. I think we've seen more of that. We don't reject it as much as we used to. She says, we also re reject this idea of fundamental guilt, that Americans don't accept the idea of fundamental guilt. But, she says, that Americans do accept a certain brand of altruism, which is dangerous to them. And she says, what we do have is we have this overgenerous desire to relieve the suffering of others. And the example that comes to my mind there is this idea that we are obligated to take in Muslim refugees even if that means putting ourselves at unnecessary risk. 
that would be an example where we as Americans think, oh, we're a tolerant culture. We've seen a lot of it in, in Europe, right, of course, in Germany, Merkel, uh, taking in these refugees at tremendous expense. Um, so, you know, that's one example. You can think about this in, in your own life as well. Have you, you know, had this overzealous desire to act, to re- to relieve suffering of others? And And the question that Rand asks is, well, what do you do? When in doing this, you know, you're trying to relieve the suffering of others, you realize that you have set yourself up to be harmed on a, on a course. Do you reverse? Do you do something else? Or do you just kind of get off this merry-go-round of setting yourself up to, you know, be vulnerable to terrorist attacks in, the, in this refugee problem example? You know, obviously, she thinks, you know, you should at least when you see that you have set yourself on a course to be harmed, that you should give up this, you know, again, it's a certain brand of altruism. It's not this total self-sacrifice, but she says Americans are very susceptible to this idea. If you've read Atlas Shrugged, this is something that Hank Reardon embodied, this idea that, ah, you know, it's so easy for him to give everybody else this wonderful party where they can enjoy themselves in luxury on a night with a storm outside, or it's so easy for him to just write a check for his brother who's working for the friends of global progress or whatever, uh, that somehow it's not going to harm him. But in fact, he is harming himself in, in providing these values to them. So thinking about that, uh, you know, in, in terms of a culture, I think we are guilty of it. And even when we are Seeing that it sets a, uh, you know, sets us on a course where we're going to be harmed by, for example, Islamic terrorism. We we're persisting in that conduct on the idea that we need, we have some obligation. Even Trump thinks, not necessarily that we have to bring the refugees here, but that somehow we're obligated through tax money to create safe havens for them over in the Middle East or somewhere in Europe or whatever, some sort of a safe zone for them. Why is that our problem, especially today? Um, so those are the, the various elements that Rand attributes to the American sense of life and things to think about. What I want to do is take a call, and maybe my caller's got comments on this. Hi, you're on the air. Who's this? Hello? Oh, it's Waldo again, right? Yeah, hi. It, tur- it, tur- it turns out I did circle back to... Islam. You had mentioned that in the in the chat room over there. I actually didn't know when I picked up the call that I would have circled back exactly to your topic, but that's great. It worked out well. Yeah, I was I was <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. Well, um, yeah. When you so I mean, I'm trying to link it about to what um, philosophy needs it. Um, but what I was thinking that you had mentioned before about. Um, people talking about Islam, should they say Islam, should they say jihad, should they say right. Islamic totalitarianism, like what should be the terminology? And um, I was thinking that it's, it is, okay, we can say that it is Islam. It, it's definitely like everything that is harming us and even Muslims themselves is written in the books of Islam. But you need to convince these people. And usually when someone gets confronted by an idea that, like, it completely denounces their previous idea, they don't try to understand it. They just double down on 
their misconceptions. So you're right. When someone's talking about something that is a problem, they should use the right term, but then they need to think of a different way of approaching it when you're trying to convince the person who actually believes it or believes the erroneous idea. Because otherwise, it's just like talking to a wall that just gets harder. Yeah, and and this is this is a point that has come up in these debates over the years about this terminology. If you use the term Islam right off the bat, then you're going to alienate a huge segment of your audience and maybe not be able to communicate to them at all. And you know, similarly, you know, was Rand was talking about selfishness versus rational self-interest or something, right? If you say rational self-interest, you will perhaps retain more of the audience and not alienate them right away, right? Because suddenly if you say rational self-interest versus just selfishness, you're not necessarily talking about traipsing all over everybody else in order to get what you want. Um, I'd say trampling is probably a better trampling all over everybody else to get what you want. Uh, well, you also have to consider what your ultimate goal is and what you're trying to do. If your goal is to um, end the destruction that Islam brings to the world, that doesn't mean that Islam has to go away completely. It can mean that it has like people who ha- it has to change somehow so it's not destructive anymore. I'm not saying that that's what needs to happen or should happen. I'm just saying it's like. If, if, like, the goal is not, like, because if you can say, like, the goal is to end Islam from existing in the world, like, that's, like, almost an impossible goal. Or, like, how would you achieve that? So, like, I think right, it's, like, but an it's, adjustment it's, it's of expectations super, of the goal. Yeah, it's it's super important to know whether what you're dealing with is a misinterpretation of Islam or whether it's just somebody who really takes this ideology seriously because then – when you have all these people and you don't know whether or not they take it seriously, then one of them could pose a danger to you and you need to act accordingly. And so it does, I think, matter. You can't just say, okay, well, there's this one little segment of it. It, It's at least important to make that determination. And again, this is in the realm of explicitly, um, you know, adhered to explicitly accepted ideology that you want to look, you know, what's in the black box, so to speak. Uh, you know, psychology, it, it's maybe something you can't even figure out. And, you know, all you can do is within certain realms, just say. And, and, and you know, again, it, it's, you know, in different contexts, you have to make different judgments about these things as well. Right, I, think yeah, about it. definitely, and what, how you talk about something in a certain context, and that you use, and that you're careful about describing what you really want to describe. Because some people use certain words that they don't, that they shouldn't be using. Like it conveys the general idea, but does, does not convince, convey the exact um, idea that they want to convey. So the other person, like if it's a debate or something, will then just like hook on, hook himself onto that term you use. Or, or that adjective or verb or whatever, and like spin it, spin it out, and then like, okay, what are we like? Then, and people just are not careful. Like you've seen like all these videos that people put on like on Fox or on on the internet, even of people just like screaming about Islam and what a problem it is, but they don't like, they don't use 
it's like they don't use the words that would actually help convince people. They're just sort of like screaming into a microphone. And that Yeah, I mean, you know, part of part of the problem is the culture and just the proliferation out there on the internet and on television of these short sound bites. And right. in a How much short can you in, convey in a short sound bite. Yeah. Yeah. And so what needs to be said is that it really is important that we know what the motivating ideology is and whether that motivating ideology is Islam itself versus some variant and everything else. But it, it's also the case that you can't necessarily say all of that in the time that you're allowed. So how do you communicate anything worthwhile in the 30 seconds that they give you when they ask you for a recommendation about, you know, how we should treat Iran and its nuclear program yeah. or something, right? That's the challenge. That's the challenge. And, and, and it's, it does, it does matter. I don't think you can just say Islamic totalitarianism at least you can't say it in every single context and know that you've done your job trying to name the enemy's ideology, which is, I think, important to do. Yeah, um, I agree. And I also wanted to mention you were talking about Americans and how to relate to the world regarding to what Ayn Rand had written. And I remember you, you had mentioned that Americans don't believe in the power of evil. Um, that's what she that was she was writing it, in you know 1971. Right, and I thought that was interesting because it got me to thinking like, well, okay, like we're talking about like a general American sense of life, and I think that's changed a lot. And I thought that was inter- interesting because I, from what I think, it's that not that now Americans like they didn't used to believe in the power of evil because evil, as I said, is ultimately powerless unless it has the the sanction of the victim to allow it to exist. So Americans didn't used to allow evil to exist within state, so that's why they didn't think it had power. But throughout these decades, it sort of has flipped in that like all our American virtues are now considered evil. Capitalism, freedom of right, speech. Right, but I think I think it's um, also so the power this... that power that we had to end evil has suddenly turned into the evil itself. But why why is it people. why is it why is it that we've done that and it's because of that last element that she was talking about this brand of altruism that we embrace and you know again Americans aren't necessarily the type of altruists that you've got in Europe or you know they're not pure socialists or communists necessarily but it's the the over generous kind of spirit right now we've got a bunch of Republicans who will probably vote for this huge infrastructure spending bill in part to quote, create jobs out of this overzealous generosity. And it's misguided. It's just going to create more pain for everybody in, in the long term. And it's, it's wrong. It's, you know, sacrificing some to others, but go and tell these Republicans that. <laughs> They'll have zero effect in changing so much. Yeah. Um, so that that was the point you wanted about Waldo about the Islam. You wanted to explore that a bit further. Yeah, that that was it. I remembered like you were talking later on. I remember oh, you're talking about the black box, and I knew there was something else that related to that term, but I totally had forgotten. So uh, thank you for taking my call again. Yeah, great. Thanks for hanging on, and we'll we'll talk again 
in future shows. So I'm going to back over to the chat room and see here. Yeah, Motive Power says Americans confuse generosity with sacrifice. Yes. Uh, you know, being over generous and then sacrificing, uh, you know, especially when you see that you're trying to relieve suffering of, for example, these refugees. Um, other comments in here. Uh, James asks, is Trump more of a dismal Nixon or more of the flamboyant European type? Maybe somewhere in the middle, I'm thinking, but maybe that's something we'll need to talk about when we get together. I'd be interested to hear your view on that, James. Of course, James, if you want to call in, I will not object at all. 760-888-5817. So, Let's go back over to the blog, don'tletitgo.com. You'll see that I have made good on my promise to try to interact with Donald Trump to the extent that I can. So Donald Trump put out his New Year's tweet about how we as a nation will together make America great again. And my response is there. I said, I propose a deal. You do what you can to simply make it free again. And we'll do the rest because what is it that a government can do? Just make it free, protect the rights of the individual. The only thing that can really make America great is people acting according to their own judgment because they're being left free to do so. And that just hasn't happened to the extent, nearly the extent that it should have for for a very long time. So speaking of tweets, there's this interesting piece that I got from New York Times the other day, and it's right along this topic that I'm interested in, the Snapchat presidency of Donald Trump. And Brooks talks about the fact that, look, you know, Trump is not going through any of the usual processes that a president should when he's determining policy, pronouncing policy and everything else. He says normal leaders, they come up with policy proposals in a certain conventional way gather their advisors around them and they debate alternatives with briefing papers, intelligence briefings and implementation strategies. But nah, you know, Donald Trump doesn't do any of that. And he is tweeting out there. The thing I want to point in, go ahead and read it. It's, it's very interesting. But the one thing that I found that I was really grabbed by in this piece was Brooks talking about it being more like Snapchat, that it's not something that you should think of as a, policy statement that's meant to endure. He says, instead, no, it's more like Snapchat. Here's the quote from Brooks. He says, his statements should probably be treated less like policy declarations and more like Snapchat. He says, they exist to win attention at the moment, but then they disappear. So he says, you don't treat words like the French deconstructions. He says, instead, you don't treat words as things that have meanings in themselves, but as displays in an oppositional power struggle. He says, Trump is not a national leader. He is a national show. Um, Now, obviously, whether that's true remains to be seen. We're going to have to see how these tweets actually translate into policy. We've seen one example this week, and I've put an article about it in the program notes. It's this ethics office issue. And as you may have known, a lot of our seasoned politicians have just, you know, had decided that the first thing that they wanted to do was put through some sort of legislation that was going to change the rules of this independent ethics office that they have in the House. And Trump tweets out how 
well, yeah, maybe there is something wrong with this ethics office. And it sounds from what I can understand, like there is something wrong with this ethics office, that there is, in effect, punishment without proper procedure, or that at least there's severe negative ramifications that happen when this ethics office acts. And it's doing so without following any kind of proper procedure, like an anonymous tip can ruin a politician's career because of the way this ethics office operates. That sounds bad. Trump thinks, yeah, it sounds bad. But nonetheless, you know, what does it look like when these politicians, they're coming back in, they're supposed to get working on the first hundred day agenda, repeal Obamacare, do all this stuff. And the first thing they do is something to keep themselves entrenched in power is what it looks like, right? Even if it's the actual right policy with respect to the way this ethics office operates, nonetheless, it contradicts what Trump ran on this idea, at least towards the end of his campaign of drain the swamp. He's, you know, they're supposed to be working to drain the swamp. They're not supposed to be trying to protect themselves from examination of their ethics violations. So, that is something to uh, to take a look at. And it looks like Trump's tweets had an effect there. It's like, look, you know, it's, it's not an issue of policy, but of the priority of the policy. Put that on the back burner, he's telling them, and they did it. Is that good? Is that bad? You know, they're all saying it's bad. You know, this is something we can examine over time. But it seems like that was really the wrong priority for them to have. Um, you know, they need to come in strong with some of these things that really show like they're going to drain the swamp and free us up from regulation and everything else. Um, another article, Trump appears to side with Assange over intelligence agencies conclusions. He's been tweeting out there again about Assange, basically siding with Assange, who has said that the sources for the WikiLeaks stuff that he's you know, that he was putting out there about the DNC and Hillary stuff, that it's not the Russians, that it wasn't Russians trying to interfere with our election. Uh, So far, Trump has not cited any evidence that he alone is privy to. All of us can watch Fox News and watch Julian Assange say these things to Sean Hannity, okay? So um, we're going to need to hear more from Donald Trump to figure out why it is that he's, you know, saying things in support of Assange over the intelligence. Now, it could be that he's a little bit miffed about having his intelligence briefing scheduled after the Congress because intelligence is going to brief the Congress on Thursday and then Trump on Friday. And I think he was a little miffed about that. So maybe he's decided he's going to just go out there and say stuff in favor of Assange because he's not getting his briefing before Congress or something. I don't know exactly. But what I do know, I was curious to see what, you know, he says I've got evidence. I haven't seen any evidence that he's put forth that he alone is privy to. Uh, Obama fights for health laws. Republicans stand firm on vow to repeal. I'm skeptical about whether they're going to have a repeal that's going to take effect immediately. And as I've talked about before on this show, I've got this metaphor for Obamacare. Obamacare is a bandage, right? that's designed to solve the problems in the healthcare industry. Of course, the problems in the healthcare industry were themselves caused by government. You can go back decades and trace the cause and effect relationship to this, maybe even a century. Um, But what this bandage is in effect, first of all, it's ineffective. 
it's not, you know, solving any of these problems. It's probably making them worse. And what I call it is I call it an acid soaked bandage. So it's like you have this wound. Not only are you putting a bandage on that's not really doing any good, but it's an acid soaked bandage that's just making the problem worse. What do you do? You rip off that damn bandage and you rip it off right now as fast as you can. And some Republicans are thinking, ah, well, we'll, we'll, we'll pass a repeal bill, but the repeal won't go into effect all at once, you know. Get that out of there. What you'll enjoy if you go at the blog at don'tletitgo.com, I've got a little tweet there. Fox has a quotation from Nancy Pelosi about the Republicans, you know, impending repeal attempt. She says, quote, this has a tremendous assault on the health security, end quote. And I made sure to read that very carefully because it's not my cold. It's not my inability to articulate today, which I've had a little bit of that during the show, but not too much. I've been pretty happy. Uh, this is her grammar and syntax. She says, this has a tremendous assault on the health security. It is awesome that Nancy Pelosi was reelected as the minority leader there in the House because we get to laugh about her for the next four years, and that will provide a lot of entertainment. Uh, thanks to Rob Abiera for giving me a link to this wonderful story. Michigan just banned the banning of plastic bags. It almost makes me want to move to Michigan. Not really, but you know, you've seen me or heard me complain about the plastic bag ban here in California. Not the ban, but the lines at the stores are longer because of what they've done, too. It's it's just horrific, the effect that this has had. And then finally, I've got a little YouTube video that Daniel, listener, sent me on addiction. And it talks about that research that I've mentioned on the show before, where if you give the rats the equivalent of a rat holiday they aren't attracted to the little drugs that you give them access to as much. And, and, you know, it helps you to question what really is the nature of addiction. This is a topic that we'll talk about on future shows. We might even have a debate about it. I think that would be a lot of fun. I have a call. I'm going to grab. Let me see who it is. Hi, you're on the air. Who's this? Is it me? It is. Oh, is this James? Hi. It is. Hello. Welcome. Welcome. Well, thank you. Um, just to bring it back to where you started, I, I think that the diagnosis of Trump, uh, the, the temptation, as it were, to psychologically diagnose him, even if you're not a psychologist and even if you haven't actually examined him, uh, right. is so tempting is because he does not have a clear ideology. If right. Trump had had a clear ideology or even much of a political track record, it would have been we would have had something to go on in terms of predicting his behavior. Uh, people are trying to predict his behavior. I think that psychologizing is not a particularly effective uh, means no. of trying to figure out uh, Trump because he could be, as many people have pointed out, as you pointed out, his tweets may not be actual assertions of long-term policy, but actually stage, uh, stage management of the moment. And right. in that sense, everything he does, until we have actual policies on the ground, bills signed, uh, executive orders signed, executive orders repealed, we're sort of guessing as to what Trump is. And uh, that was part of the danger in electing Trump in the very first place. We, it's, he is a, himself a black box to a certain extent, and it kept him flexible. It's, they, his fans say that it's all simply a negotiating position that he's maintaining. But the real loser, I think, last year was ideology in Trump's election. Yes. 
and idealism yeah. generally. Uh, it's, it, yeah. If you ask yourself, what does Trump's election stand for? What does it represent in terms of the American sense of life? And I go back to Ayn Rand's article uh, that you <laughs> discussed so much uh, today. Mm-hmm. Is Trump more the dismal Nixon type, or is he more the flamboyant European type, to use Rand's own terminology here? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that what we've seen in Obama and in Trump both is actually a move towards a more flamboyant type of um, powerful leader, if you will, as right. opposed to uh, <clears throat> in the past uh, when we, you know, LBJ or Jimmy Carter versus uh, or Hubert Humphrey versus Richard Nixon and, and so forth. Um, uh, you know, even a Ronald Reagan. Uh, was no, although he you know was a, had a sort of a movie star aura about him, um, was still very much in in many of Ayn Rand's senses uh, had a, expressed an American sense of life, and right. um, I, I think that is changing. I think the 21st century has seen. Oh, I think and there's still sign of hope. I think we still have a fragment of hope. Yeah. But don't you see uh, some decline <laughs> in recent no, years? No, definitely, in terms of the, uh, definitely. American, no. Um, James, I've only got a minute to go, unfortunately, and so now we have to end sort of on that that uh, somber note, but promise to come back and talk some more, and then we'll talk about something more positive like hope perhaps on a future show, but also I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have you back uh, to talk about the book as well, your book, Creating Christ. Okay. Will Does that do. sound good? Okay. Will thank do. you, sir. Sorry I do show. have to end the show now. Yeah, thank you, and thanks for tuning in. Uh, if everyone, you want to continue the conversation, you go to the blog at don'tletitgo.com. You can leave comments and everything else if you want to become a show supporter. We always appreciate that. I have some thank yous that I owe out to some people who gave me end-of-year donations, so thank you for that. You can follow me on Twitter at Amy Peacock. You can also follow me on Facebook at Amy Peacock. Every so often I put some posts out there about news and such. Uh, there's also the Don't Let It Go Unheard page on Facebook. So hope to see you there. Take care, and I'll talk to you next week.